Oh God, we're back. Double whammy in one week. Told you this was coming. I didn't know when it was coming, but we get to release two this week. And I'm super pumped about that, y'all. Eric Godsey returns to the show. And even though the impetus, it's funny because uh, <laughs> we, we teach people. I mean, we really dive into this, what we're teaching. Um, and the importance of teaching this is something that I've, all the masters that I've learned from um, teach this. To, to have the ability to use the intellect and the rational thinking mind, to not discard that, but also to be inclusive of the feeling intuitive mind and how we can connect to that. And it's funny because this podcast, I was bringing Godzi on because we're running back full temple reset, part two. Uh, and really that was the impetus for having Godzi back on because we wanted to promote it, talk about it, and really drive people to the event. It's May 18th through the 22nd. But feeling, <laughs> feeling into the conversation, uh, we really, there's just too much to talk about. We spoke for a fucking hour before this podcast started. And we're like, we, I was like, we got to get the mics going. We've missed uh, many good things, many good topics of conversation. And that really steered the ship. We went just about two hours talking and very little of it had to do with Full Temple Reset. I mean, some of the things were guiding, guiding principles from Full Temple, um, certainly topics of conversation, but we really didn't dive into the meat and potatoes of that uh, because it didn't feel right. We've already done that before. And I didn't want to recreate something we've already done. So with that, as I mentioned on the podcast, we will link in the show notes here the full breakdown of what Full Temple Reset is, our very last podcast we did. If you didn't hear that, it's awesome. It's not just us talking about the event that we're throwing. It's us open sourcing the material and the content of that event. So you yourself, if you cannot make it due to time constraints, uh, finances, anything, finances, uh, financial considerations, anything like that, you can simply still drop in to some extent and do the fasting mimicking diet with us. You can still sign up for um, blood work and get the green light from ways to well. So on some level, you're medically supervised and, and you can get a before and after snapshot, which I do dive into. Uh, something we did not have from the first podcast was my before and after blood work. And even though I don't read the blood work like um, my brother, Dr. Paul Saladino does, really getting into the science and the nitty gritty of the numbers. Um, I do talk about a, a few main things that shifted dramatically. And, you know, what's cool about my stats is that I have experience with ketogenic diets. I have experience with um, two five-day water-only fasts. And, um, you know, this is my second fasting mimicking diet. But this is the first time out of any fast where I've had blood work done right beforehand and pretty quickly after, I think within six weeks afterwards. And it's awesome because it's, you know, it is, you know, over a month later and uh, you still see just ridiculous results. Now I'm going to further this still having the, uh, the archetype of the guinea pig inside me. Uh, I have been eating, I know full temple resets coming up again. I have been eating um, like I did in college, not, not quite 10,000 calories, but I'm eating for size for the first time since 2017 when I first got to on it. And uh, the reason for that is we have full temple reset coming back up. I know I'm going to drop some pounds. So I'm like, man, let me just let me bulk right now. I haven't I haven't done hypertrophy style weight training in a very long time. That would be bodybuilding style sets and reps. Um, still, it's it's like Louis Vuitton, your power building. So I might hit 
four sets of eight or two to three sets of 10, things like that. Uh, AMRAPs, different, just different stuff to really break down the muscle tissue and cause it to grow. And I'm eating more carbohydrates and just more calories, period. One of the th <laughs> one of the things, it feels funny and, and uh, guilty admitting this, but one of the things that I've been doing is, um, this is not good for weight loss, by the way. Let me just throw in the disclaimer right now. This is good for weight gaining, and it and it, you had better hope that you are healthy enough to get away with something like this. Uh, maybe I'm not even healthy enough to get away with something like this, but I've always said cheat clean. It's my favorite hashtag from Quest Nutrition, cheat clean. If you're going to eat bad, make it yourself, make it organic, make it still like, don't, don't have nasty chemicals and shit in there. But this is, a, this is what I call a cheat meal, and this is a weight gainer, right? So... Uh, years ago, my wife were in San Diego. My wife and I, Natasha, were in San Diego, and we ate at a burger place named Slater's Fifty Fifty. Uh, I think Kelly Slater owns the spot. And what he did is he would mix fifty percent ground beef with fifty percent ground bacon. That's the burger patty. And the most unique item I saw on the menu was a peanut butter and jelly Fifty uh, Fifty burger. And I was like, "What the fuck?" And I was like, "That can't taste good." And then I started thinking, and I was like, "Oh, that's kind of like the." McGriddle, or you know, when you get a little extra maple syrup on your breakfast sausage or your bacon, and then that, that and your eggs, even and then it tastes good. And I was like, I bet this thing tastes good. So I tried it, it was the best burger I've ever had in my life. It's ridiculously good. Now, again, not going to help you lose weight, not going to help you lower advanced glycation end products or any of the nasty stuff that we're trying to combat with a fast, but damn, <laughs> sugar, salt, fat, all three components sweet and savory, uh, everything that would make food taste good, that's in there. So I've been making that for myself recently as I try to mass up uh, prior to, to May 7th. So I'm going to go ketogenic for two weeks, and then I'll drop in for the fasting mimicking diet for five days. That'll be my three weeks keto reset diet uh, for the quarter. I'm going to try to do these quarterly or at least three times this year. Not the event itself, but just the fast. And um, you know, just following the footsteps of others like Peter Atia and, and different people who, who are more committed. You know, obviously, Pete is dialed the fuck in. He does, I think, four one-week-long water-only fasts. Um, not quite there yet, but I've been, I've been gaining, trying to gain, and I'm going to uh, run it back with NutriSense so I can actually see what's going on in my interior, and then I will do the fasting mimicking diet again. And I think what's really cool is that, you know, hemoglobin A1C, which is your longer-term snapshot, dropped significantly um, for really metabolic health. How am I processing carbohydrates? No matter how many I'm eating, like, what does that look like? What do, do I have elevated blood sugar over the course of a three- to five-month look? And again, it's not perfect. NutriSense or any CGM is going to be far better at, at dialing that in. And I'm going to dive into those stats. I think I'm going to get Dan from NutriSense back on the podcast to really cover that stuff, but also going to get blood work. I want to see, like, do, how bad is this in contrast to when I got blood work right after the fast and I looked great? So I want to get to see, does eating like this, will it throw me off or, or does it actually keep that six to 12 month positive change where now I'm actually processing carbohydrates easier, even though I'm eating more? Um, this is all stuff I want to know. So uh, we dive into quite a bit in this podcast and it was a hell of an intro before I talk about sponsors here, but just there's always something. One of the things that I really want people to, to realize is that there is no singular right way, you know, and, and part of the medicine of Dr. Walter Longo, who created the fasting mimicking diet, as he said, 
can I make this more approachable for people and still give them 80 to 90% of the gains, right? Or losses, however you want to look at that. Can I allow people who don't have um, the time, the energy, or maybe the health to do a water-only fast or a dry fast? Can I, can I bridge the gap for them, right? He thought outside of the box. And, and I like that because in doing so, he created something very valuable for people. Um, but self-experimentation is kind of the name of the game. And if you get curious about yourself, you can start to play. And, you can, and it doesn't turn into, oh, God, I can't eat or I'm only having one shake a day for five days. No, it turns into, let's see what happens. Get curious about your health. Get curious about what works for you and what doesn't. Grab a CGM and throw it on the back of your arm for two weeks to two months and see what food does what in your body. It will tell you more than a genetic test. And I, and I, I, I love the genetic test, you know, where you take the raw data and you send it to Rhonda Patrick's Found My Fitness. You get to learn a lot about yourself. But a CGM tells you far more about blood sugar management, which really is one of the cornerstones uh, cornerstone issues with modern society is how we process blood sugar, not just for diabetes and obesity and inflammation, but for all neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia. They, a lot of many people call that type three diabetes now. So again, we circle back to blood sugar, blood sugar, blood sugar. We know um, through the science of Walter Longo that the fasting mimicking diet can change your metabolic function, how you process carbohydrates for many months after the fact. Um, even if you go back to having a standard American diet. So I'm going to actually test that, and that's partly why I'm having these Slater's 50-50 burgers homemade uh, with organic jam, and it's still organic sugar. Uh, so I'm going to see what's going on there. I'll be slapping on the CGM sometime this week, and uh, I got bulking for three weeks, I think, and then I'll hit the keto diet for three weeks, and we'll get little before and after snippets of that with the blood work. All sorts of good shit there. Um, Gods and I riff on so many good things. I think I, I might have had one too many scoops of Kratom before the podcast. And uh, I, I go, <laughs> I'll go down a rabbit hole in my first, <laughs> my first response to him because it brought up so many things for me. And, it, and it, what's funny is that it's like, I think we're t- speaking to the power of fiction books and, and you know, what they can draw, right? And, you know, when Jung breaks down the difference between a sign and a symbol, and I don't want to explain all this. I'll let Godzi do it on the podcast. But when we, when we look at a symbol, not a sign, it's ability to draw so much more out of us. Like I had all kinds of thoughts and I just blah, let them all out uh, in that first one. And then I'm able to, to hopefully uh, settle back down, come to my quiet center and steer the ship appropriately. But I love this podcast. I love Eric Godsey and I love any chance that I get to sit down and pick his wonderful, unique brain. Um, He's my brother, and he's amazing. Support this show by sending this to everybody you know. If you want to go to the, if you think somebody would like to go to Full Temple Reset, send them this podcast, and and uh, they can link in the show notes for the previous one and all that good stuff. Even if they don't, and they just want to know how to do this stuff, um, it's all provided here for you. The other way that you can support this show is supporting our sponsors. These guys make the show possible financially. They allow me to continue to fly out of town for guests and uh, really take the time away from my family and my other jobs, which are a plenty right now, um, to continue to learn. And, you know, that's the greatest gift of this podcast for me personally is I get to learn from experts all the time in the fields that I'm most passionate about and most curious about. So thank you for making this show possible. 
uh, support our sponsors by purchasing whatever it is they're selling. And these guys, we've got some awesome, awesome hand-picked sponsors for you today. Protect yourself from America's fastest-growing crime. Try 14 days for free at https colon forward slash forward slash aura.com slash Kyle. You know what the fastest-growing crime in America is. For years, this crime rate has been surging and affecting millions of Americans. I'm talking about identity theft, and it happens to 1 in 20 Americans. Yet despite this, those who have had their identity stolen are often shocked when it happens. Imagine trying to log into your email account one day only to see that the password had changed just hours ago. Then you start getting notifications of activity from your bank, credit cards, crypto accounts. That's when the feelings of panic, fear, anxiety, paranoia, disbelief, shock, and anger and frustration and guilt set in. That's why I'm excited to partner with Aura. Aura is identity theft protection, fraud monitoring, a VPN, password management, and antivirus software all combined into one easy-to-use app. Aura monitors the dark web for your emails, passwords, and social security numbers and sends alerts fast right to your phone and email. When it comes to fraud, every second matters. Connect your credit and bank accounts and get notified of any changes up to four times faster than Aura's competitors. Their VPN allows you to stay anonymous online while keeping your browsing history and personal information safe and encrypted. And their antivirus software will block malware and viruses before they infect your devices. Protect you and your family from America's fastest growing crime. Try Aura free for two weeks and see if any of you or your family's personal information has been compromised. Start your free trial at https colon forward slash forward slash aura.com slash Kyle. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash Kyle. Protect yourself from America's fastest growing crime. Try 14 days for free. Aura.com slash Kyle. Thank you, Aura, for sponsoring this video. And then, of course, uh, all of these will be linked in the show notes, so you can just one-click them. We're also brought to you today by Lucy.co. Look, we're all adults here, and I know some of us choose to use nicotine to relax, focus, or just unwind after a long day. Lucy is a modern oral nicotine company that takes nicotine gum, lozenges, and pouches for adults who are looking for the best, most responsible way to consume their nicotine. It's a new year. Why not start it out by switching to a new nicotine product that you can feel good about. I absolutely love this. Uh, my, my brother uh, that I met on one of the sacred hunts with Monsel, Nathan Smith, was just in town uh, staying at my house. He pops in a few times a year. He was out for my 40th birthday. And he actually had the pouches, which I had not tried yet. And he's like, hey, man, here's the, here, you want one of these Lucy pouches? I'm like, fuck yeah. So I threw it in. And it is fast acting. I think that's one of the things that I love about it is that right when you pop it in, it, it's a poo, blast, a fast, effective relief. Um, I was thrilled. We had it working out. We try, I mean, obviously, we, I use these things everywhere, working out, podcasting, got one in right now. But my first time with the pouch, and it is awesome. If you haven't tried it, it is a hell of a way to tune in, to relax, to unwind, but also to really shift gears and be able to focus and it's a short window. That's possibly one of the things that makes it stand out so much better than other things like caffeine. I can have this at night while reading, and generally that's, uh, that's when I get most of my reading done is after my son and uh, daughter go to sleep. If I'm not having a little alone time with the missus, I will certainly read, and I'll do it with nicotine because it allows me to focus and then drop it out and knock out, and I'm fast asleep. Check it all out. Lucy.co, that's L-U-C-Y dot C-O, and use promo code KKP at checkout. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. All right, yeah, we're all big boys and big girls. 
Y'all know what time it is. Check it out, lucy.co, and get the uh, fatty discount with KKP at checkout. We're also brought to you by p3om.com slash kingsboo. Have you had bad gas lately? I know this may be an uncomfortable topic. The only reason I bring it up is because bad gas is a sign you have undigested food fermenting in your gut. This is occasionally a problem for all of us. Just ask my wife <laughs> or son. <laughs> we get in a fart contest sometimes. And that's why I want to tell you about P3OM probiotics. P3OM is a patented probiotic that eats up excess sugar, eliminates bad bacteria fast, and protects your gut from inflammation and viruses. So you have less gas and a stronger immune system. P3OM also improves digestion, speeds up metabolism, and increases energy throughout the day. What makes P3OM so different from other probiotics is that it can survive the gastrointestinal tract and goes through your whole body to support both your gut and your entire immune response. It's a secret weapon for reducing or eliminating bad gas and upgrading your immunity and protection against bad bacteria. Here's some great news. You can get 10% off P3OM right now by going to p3om.com kingsboo and typing in the coupon code kingsboo10. And if you order it, and it's not everything you hope for. Their support team will give you all of your money back, no questions asked. Just visit P, number three, the letter O, M, dot com, forward slash K-I-N-G-S-B-U to get 10% off and discount code KINGSBOO10 at checkout. I absolutely love these guys. Um, and, and that is a phenomenal probiotic. I have that with me everywhere I go. It is the one that I take on the road. It is the one that I take most consistently. It is incredible. Last but not least, we're brought to you by Super Speciosa. Super Speciosa is uh, perhaps my funnest sponsor out of all of them because it's the one that gives you euphoria. It is the one that improves workouts and runner's highs. It is the one that can knock you out at night and give you the deepest sleep you've ever had. And it's the one that really replaced all, uh, all, other, <laughs> all other non-medicinal things that I use to alter my consciousness. Uh, have been replaced by Super Speciosa Kratom. The reason for that is I can have this and there's no side effect. There's no come down. There's no hangover the next day. Um, this stuff is phenomenal. You feel good. It is a body high. It's not a heady high. It's not like cannabis where all of a sudden you're like, hey, man, I don't want to do anything now. And look, cannabis is great. I'm not poo-pooing on it. It is a plant medicine for sure uh, when used the right way. But Kratom to me is something that Truly, uh, I remember Half-Baked when he's like, you ever seen the back of a $20 bill on weed? That's kind of how I am with Kratom. Like, have you tried having sex on Kratom? It is phenomenal. Uh, it's phenomenal the whole way through. It actually, I mean, if I'm be perfectly honest, it helps me last longer. So <laughs> that's one huge plus. The orgasm lasts longer. And the after effects is like, holy shit, this is good. Uh, so Kratom during sex, phenomenal. Kratom in the workout, phenomenal. Whether I'm lifting weights, uh, I feel like, and, and I can get this from a microdose of other medicines, but, you know, it connects that mind-muscle connection. I can get into my body. Even doing yoga on Kratom is incredible because as I get into a tight position and breathe into that space, the ability for my body to relax and unwind itself is increased. It's like, it's like my muscles listening a little bit more closely to my intention. And as I breathe into these spaces, I can open it up far quicker, which is important right now because I'm hitting bodybuilder sets and reps and I'm a bit more sore than I used to be. If you go for a run on Kratom, it's awesome. It does not hurt cardio whatsoever. And it improves your runner's high, not just during, but after the, the after effects. 
Uh, it is incredible. It's, it's a great way to unwind. It's also a great way to party. And that's what I was saying. I mean, I don't drink alcohol anymore. If I do, I'll have, um, you know, a bottle of dry farm wines around Christmas time, Thanksgiving, things like that. Limit myself to one uh, dry farm. But, you know, when I'm going to a concert or I'm trying to have fun, or I'm going to an ecstatic dance. Kratom is the medicine for me. It is absolutely awesome. Super Speciosa is the best brand on the planet. There are no fillers, no additives, nothing um, that you don't want inside, just 100% of the good ground-up mix. Uh, it is bitter, and there's a lot of science on how bitters are really healthy for the body. So um, you can mix in something else. Organifi green juice is phenomenal, uh, different things like that to, to make the taste go away, or you can just use capsules. Personally, I like mixing it up. I like adding bitters to my diet. And um, I just love this stuff. You know, Kratom is an all-natural herb related to the coffee plant that has been used in Thailand for centuries and really all across Southeast Asia. Uh, Kratom helps energize your mind and relax your body. It just helps you feel good without feeling impaired. Super Speciosa has only one ingredient, pure Kratom leaf. And uh, this, this is awesome. For beginners, they recommend the Super Speciosa strain because it is the most popular best-selling item. They have 100% satisfaction or your money back guaranteed. Try Kratom and get 20% off your entire order. Go to getsuperleaf.com slash KKP and use promo code KKP for 20% off your entire order. That is getsuperleaf.com slash KKP. And uh, don't forget to add KKP as the coupon code. You're going to get 20% off your entire order. I recommend trying a few different strains. You know, just like with cannabis, psilocybin, or any of these other medicines, different strains equal different results. And I can't give you a one-size-fits-all because all of us have different neurochemistry. All of us have a different myco microbiome. And what that means is our guts are going to process it differently, and it's going to impact the brain differently. So if I was to tell you about a starter's kit, it would probably be Green Mengda, Red Bali, and then Super Speciosa. And I would play with those at a variety of doses. I'd play those at a variety of timings, always taking on an empty stomach, uh, in my opinion, because that's going to ensure delivery time and the fullness of what you take in. But check it out. Run the experiments and get back to me. Let me know what you think of all this stuff at Cal Kingsbury Community on Zion, at Living with the Kingsburys on Instagram, and of course on the Fit for Service app which uh, I am available and responsive to everybody that's there. All right. And then, of course, check out fitforservice.com for all things that we're up to, especially for this full temple reset that's coming up May 18th through the 22nd. Um, we've got about one week, I believe, from when this ends to sign up for it. So hustle, hustle, hustle. Get signed up for it. Fitforservice.com. Without further ado, my man, Eric Gazi. You're usually supposed to only clap once, but I thought we'd do a double clap. Because we're running it back. We are running it back. Segway, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're running it back. I mean, we always run it back. Podcast status, but running it back with Full Temple Reset, part deux. <laughs> part deux. <laughs> part deux. Uh, that's coming up May 18th through the 22nd. We will be talking about that. We will be reminding everybody how dope that is, and we'll also be open sourcing that. So if you can't make it, you're going to still get some of the magic. Not all the magic, but some of the magic that you can do on your own um, for the cost of the Daily Shake. Yeah. And we've got, uh, man, we just we just bullshitted for 40, an hour. <laughs> an hour. <laughs> I was going to say 45 minutes, but an hour, yeah. We've, we've been bullshitting for an hour about all sorts of topics. Um, where do we start? You want to start with uh, the graphic novelist that you got into? Yeah, yeah that's, that's some sure. fucking juicy stuff right there. Yeah. Um, 
So uh, my name is Eric Gotzi. I don't know if we talked about that. Um, and, that happens in the intro after the fact, but I love that you right, just cool. restated love. it. Love. Um, do ads after. <clears throat> so Kyle is probably the person that I know that eats books as quickly as I do, and he and I have a consistent practice of just being like, if one of us finds a book that we think is dope, we got to tell the other one. And I've had a hard time connecting to fiction for most of my life, uh, probably because I have a childhood trauma that's played out in the story that I have to be useful to be worthy of love. I haven't let myself read much fiction. Um, but recently I've started, and me and Kyle actually, it was Kyle that helped get me into fiction with Dune. He, he, he was relentlessly advertising how incredible Dune was, read that, and lo and behold, great fiction is actually potent in the way that myths and dreams are. And it was infinitely more useful to me than reading five or ten nonfiction books that are really just a rearticulation of vague ideas that I've already studied for five years, but I'm finding like the most recent study on a thing that are, you know. I've gotten into this uh, guy named Neil Gaiman. And... Um, he's written a novel called American Gods, which the premise is essentially this character, the protagonist, starts to meet a bunch of people in the living world that are the last living echoes of the old gods that all the immigrants that came to America, if they ever did a prayer or if they ever burned at an altar to any of their gods back home, it brought a shard of those gods to America. And the old gods are trying to... Um, gather together to fight the new gods and the new gods are uh technology media the quote-unquote invisible hand of the market one of them is the conspiratorial thinking and then the last one i believe is uh globalization and he turns them all into characters and you get to like feel like the way media she's a woman or she's like a female god and she talks to the main character through like old shows and she'll like change and like do and so she'll talk through the tv to the main character and it's just carl jung's one of his ideas that i've resonated with the most is that uh there's an entire like dimensional plane happening above what we think is the real world where the gods are fighting or competing in the way like different organisms in an environmental niche compete with each other to get to live. And these gods, there are stories. There are big stories. You know, like there is a god of capitalism. There is a god of like oligarchy. There is a god of social media. And the gods... In the same way physical organisms compete for, you know, like the right to reproduce and food. Uh, gods compete for human attention, prayer, and embodied behavior. Like if you act out a belief, that's feeding that god. There's a side note. There's an entire book written about this called Egregores that Paul mm. Cech had me read. And he even breaks it down to even at the level of a corporation, if it's been in existence how big it is, how big mm -hmm. it becomes. And, and one of the, the telltale signs of the egregore that it's well-formed is once it's formed, it's 
its drive and needs move beyond that of any single person in the operating of the corporation. That that the it's kind of like you know the warrior serves the highest ideal of the kingdom, which may be beyond the king's purview of what is actually in in his kingdom currently. Um, that that egregores survive and they operate exactly how you just said, based on feelings, emotions, and desires to serve and desires to interact with that corporation or egregore. Phenomenal. And so this like a thread that's been alive in me for a couple of years now is the scientific part of me that is actually probably a defense against the truly artistic part of me because it feels like it has to explain why it's trying to do art. Because really when you think about nonfiction, it's either um, I'm doing this as a business move, you know, because like to write a book is actually a really great business investment and there's a whole shadowy backside of like, if you hire this company, you're going to have a New York Times bestseller, blah, blah, blah. And that a lot of people don't do it for the love of writing. But some of the people that write nonfiction, my intuition is they either don't have the depth to see that if they could write it as fiction or if they could write it as myth, it'd be an, an entirely a different order of potency. At least for me, it feels like because I have the call to write myth and fiction, I'll lean on nonfiction as a way to hide and to defend myself with quote unquote facts. Um, but the, the scientific part of me has wanted to like try to write a dissertation on a new type of anthropology where you actually, where I would try to articulate what are the measurable things in this reality that you could use as the footprints of the different gods. And then to like, uh, track God's histories, like when was the God born? You know, like what was the big event in culture, blah, blah, blah. The more artistic part of me has wanted to write a book about like a fiction book about the gods of our times and how they're interacting with each other and what its effects are and what are the new gods that are trying to be born. I was like, this motherfucker wrote this in 2001. And so parallel to that, uh, that's been the audio book I've been listening to. I'm, I'm going real ham right now. I love that. It's a, once you just said that it's on audio, I'm going to fuck. I'm going to know I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. I was like, I don't know that I could read it. I'm getting an audible for sure. So now, <laughs> so that's what I'm doing on audible at night. What I'm reading, uh, instead of being on my phone when I take a shit, which is like, it's so funny where I'll tell myself the story that I haven't been on my phone all day. But if I'm really honest, every time I've taken a shit, I've been on it for like a couple of minutes and it's just like that adds up. And so uh, I've been reading a graphic novel either when I read in the morning or whenever I go to the bathroom, I don't take my phone and I bring the graphic novel. And I've been reading The Sandman. And The Sandman is a graphic novel that I believe is now commercially the most successful graphic novel of all time, which is also written by Neil Gaiman. The story of how I found this in the library or in the uh, bookstore is magical and huge synchronicity. And I, it's funny how much I am overlooking it because of how excited I am by the content of what I've been reading the last five or six days. But... The Sandman is a 75-issue graphic novel series that has spanned something like 20 years that uh, tracks the journey and the story of the King of Dreams, Morpheus. And it's like, if you, if you guys listening know anything about me, that's, it's, it's like those books that I've just laid out were written for me by God 
in like they're exactly my flavor. And the really cool thing is, is I started do, like the way I study shit when I get into shit is intricate and fun and I really enjoy it. And so I've started doing research on Neil Gaiman just to get a sense of like, how does someone become that this type of writer and how the fuck does he know all this stuff? Cause there's a lot of stuff that he's like hinting to. That's like, wow. Long story short, my favorite fiction writer of all time is Alan Moore. He is the writer that created Watchmen uh, v for Vendetta, um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He wrote one of the most successful versions of the Batman and Joker story called The Killing Joke. I found out that Neil Gaiman was essentially the next one in the lineage from Alan Moore. He was taught directly by Alan Moore. They worked together for like 10 or 20 years and Alan Moore is very close to like Crowley level magical understanding. And so like there's stuff being transmitted in the background that is potent. And um, to close this loop, whenever I do ayahuasca, I get this very clear ping at some point between four and three weeks before I'm to do it of what my psychological dieta will be and i just got the ping because i'm going to go do ayahuasca in like three weeks now oh cool yeah back down at sultar mm -hmm. awesome brother yeah and the ping was uh no articles no bullshit media no nonfiction. this is your mythos to study but really it's also to, to study the human behind the mythos, which is Gaiman, and that um, it's a longer story, and I've been talking for a while, so I'm going to close this loop, but it feels like um, I've had some big alchemy around what my life's dreams are uh, that I had to do after finding existential risk theory and really trying to square the fact that all my dreams were really one generation deep and I was being selfish because I didn't understand what was coming. I think I found the alchemy to to the death of my old dream and that <clears throat> it's going to involve uh, writing, quote-unquote, science fiction for the things that I think will be needed that can't be made yet in my generation instead of arguing with people in my generation about things that in my soul of soul I know this shit does not fucking matter. And our great-grandchildren have problems that we know are coming for them that we could face. I'm just not interested. So, I like uh, that last yeah. piece that you left it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thinking of that, it's you know, one of the things that impressed so much about Dune was has it was written in the 80s by Frank Herbert, and uh, I think his brother did a number of spinoffs, but not everyone's going to catch the same shit listening to the same book, period, but especially in a, in a science fiction like that or a fiction but it's just it it's layered with spiritual wisdom first 100%. and foremost right like absolutely layered in the books you know it's in the movie there's there's a couple big ones um that really stuck out to me that made me want to read the book and then i found that you know, the audible had been redone or at least done uh 
It had 20, been Dune. It has been Dune. <laughs> it was Dune well. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, I think it was done in 2007 when they knew HBO had bought the rights to make a movie. And so, you know, the cover art for Audible has the cover art for the new movie that's mm-hmm. available on H or was on HBO. Um, and, and they get a series of actors to play all the different people, which, I mean, I, I loved uh, the British dude who did all the Harry Potter. He's awesome, even though his Hermione is comical. <laughs> <laughs> he was still great, right? And, and I knew whoever he stepped in as, he was that person. You know, he, um, phenomenal, phenomenal way. That was like the first real um, fiction that I got into with Bear because we listened to it and he did a fantastic job. But in Dune, you know, you have all these different, high-end actors to narrate all the different roles and they fucking crush yeah you know so like i was drawn in for the for the spiritual gems but i was blown away by all of the little the nuanced shit this guy knew in the 1980s like like one of the things they had alchemized ten thousand years ahead of us was man shall not create a computer in man's image Wow. That was a fundamental law. And I was Whoa. like, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, like, what do they know in their aftermath? Wow. Right? Uh, from where we're at right now. And there's so many other things, too. Like, you get into um, eugenics has been a, a, an ugly topic that, that I've touched on here and there that is still very much alive and well today. And um, that really is the you know, what the Bene Gesserit are all about. They're all about eugenics. They don't use that terminology, but that, that is. How can we create the perfect human being through uh, intelligent selection process and um, all of the right training and programming? And that eventually is, you know, what the Atreides bloodline becomes, you know? And if you go far enough into it, you get to the teeter-totter of what they call the one or the abomination, right? And there's a number of reasons for that. But anyways, that, that, that's a rabbit hole. We don't need to go now. But I mean, the, the, the amount of current events topics that are alive and well, and mm-hmm. then they will be. You talk about the God of globalization. That's going to be alive and well for us, for our kids, for our grandkids. Um, you know, and I see that from both sides. There's a part of me that's like, yeah, we are one. And we are one earth. And we should have uh, a set of... Paul Checkworth is this, the best where he says, like, it doesn't matter if you're in it for yourself or you're in it for, for yourself and others. Um, we all have the same game board. So the one thing we should agree on is, like, treat the game board well, right? And, um, and that, that, then that allows us to play the game, right? So, like, we can all agree that, right? So what are the commonalities and things where we should have certain standards as a single planet or a single realm where we can adhere to like, all right, we can do X, Y, and Z and maybe some other stuff we're going to do. That's a little shady, but we don't fuck with this thing, right? Like we all agree that this thing we take care of, um, on a globalization scale, that makes a lot of sense, right? Um, the, the climate change stuff, you know, the, the narrative of climate change, which has been hijacked in large part by people that are responsible for the great reset, um, what they used to call New World Order, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, those are the guys flying in on private jets, you know, to the, to the, to the dismay of authentic um, people that are trying to, authentic environmentalists are like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, like there's, there's things like that where uh, you scratch your head, if that was a major concern. My argument is that the major concern is 
more in lines with what we're doing to the air, the water, and the soil. And, and it has been that from a food standpoint for a very long time. And more and more, as you understand, you know, kind of how big agriculture works and, and larger corporations that get funding in and, and find their way into third world countries and then create novel genetically modified organisms. And things like, I actually listened to, a, we might talk a little bit about listening to podcasts of people that you outright disagree with, but just still listening to it to hear their side of the argument. One of which I did was um, with a former Monsanto executive whose main argument was that there's a group of people who are intelligent enough to be stupid. So they're, they're intelligent enough that they can use the intellect incorrectly or gut feelings incorrectly to then outright, you know, say like, this is bad. And it, it brought up a point. I mean, it was very straw manning of the argument, right? But it brought up a point that, that Rob Wolf made, and he's made a number of these points that I really appreciate when it comes to food because he wrote Sacred Cow with Diane Rogers which is a phenomenal book on true environmentalism, the power of ruminant animals to heal the earth, sequester carbon, X, Y, and Z. And one of the things he said was, and I don't know if he said it in that book, but just in one of his blogs or on a podcast is, look, we don't know if GMOs are the end of us or not. We don't know if they might just be just, just as fucking healthy as organic. We don't know that. Just because you genetically modify something with other material from another uh, organism, you know, is it new and novel? Yes. Does that mean that it causes cancer? Fuck no. We just don't know, right? And he's completely correct. We don't know is a good enough reason to not want to fucking have it in our food supply, right? We don't know is a good enough reason to not want to take an experimental shot. We don't know what that looks like 10 years, 20 years, 100 years from now, right? Um, and if that argument alone was there, you could say it. But the argument, and I'm getting down a, a little fucking rabbit hole here. <laughs> yeah. But... um. What we do know is that they aren't just changing the genetics, they're changing the genetics with an intention. And that intention is to increase the use of other chemicals, uh, petrochemicals and um, herbicides, fungicides, and things that have killed off 70% of our insect population. We do know that because it's the same company manufacturing all of those ingredients is the same company genetically modifying it. Monsanto, now known as Bayer, the... Um, a uh, German aspirin company that, that uh, did some testing, perhaps, in Nazi Germany and is still around today. That company owns Monsanto now. So not, they didn't go away. They just grew in size, really, and in wealth. So the, the, I'm not sure where I was going with that, but there are... There are, <laughs> there, there are uh, this all started with the globalization god, I think. <laughs> Man. Um, that's so funny. There are things like that where, you know, there, there are pieces in, non, I guess what I'm getting to is that there are strong pieces in nonfiction that resonate on a level that can speak past what our intellectual mind needs proof of. And did you mean fiction? Fiction rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fiction. There are, there are, there are things. That, and, and so when you speak to globalization and things like that, like we're, we're in, we're in a spot where the world is shrunk, not just through but really through modern technology, through the ability to fly, but also through the ability to communicate all over the planet. And, and while on the one hand, we are one planet and should have um, a set of circumstances and rules that we all agree on to live in peace and harmony with the earth, um, we should not allow that to become a stronger, more centralized force of governance, right? Which is the new world order. That is the, the great reset. That is the... The technocracy, even though that word has been thrown around since the 1930s, long before the technology we have today, it is, a, you know, the, what Catherine Austin Fitz calls the open-air prison system 
through surveillance. And that, that is, there are, you know, there are steps. We just had a guy on the podcast. I'm not sure if this will release before that or not, but the author of Scan, Nick Corbishley, brilliant book. It's a short read. It's only six hours long on Audible. Um, that really details the threat that leads you there. It's not me just jumping <laughs> uh, on the jump to conclusions, Matt. Like this has been outlined. Um, we don't want that. We want to decentralize that. We want to decentralize to the point of, you know, where we all have a level of agreed self-governance within smaller communities. And that as long as the playing field is equal, meaning we've agreed to a set of ideas that we will, we will use environmentally or we will use um, globally, like thou shalt not kill, something like that, right? Take that one piece um, out of the equation. Thou shalt not murder, at least, right? We can agree on that. Then we keep that. Now, obviously, there's nuance and all that shit because what, what is killing? What is murder? What is all these things? But um, I'm going to shut the fuck up and let you, let you steer <laughs> the shit again because I know that's rabbit hole that's done. But they see, this is something where, like, the god of globalism can stir up all of these things within me. Yeah. Whereas if you took it in, in a literal sense in one direction, I may not get all that, right? Like, it, it's almost a... It plants a seed for for thought and and thinking yep. around concepts, which yeah. I really appreciate. There's um, so many beautiful things, but to keep it on the fiction, one thing that's interesting is I find myself often slipping and saying nonfiction when I mean fiction, and I think it's because we've gone deep enough where we actually know the fiction is a type of truth that most people don't understand. So like a good definition for myth is it's something that never happened that is always happening. Yep, Paul Cech has that in his latest book. Yeah. Mm. And that fiction is myth-making. Fiction is mything, and nonfiction is, you know, the brain, the conscious mind attempting to consciously explain what the mythic is symbolically representing. And what you just talked about with the with the god of globalization, that's quote unquote Jungian textbook. What a symbol is. Um, a so Jung was a curmudgeon on this. Um, that uh, you cannot go find a dream interpretation book that can interpret your dreams because, in order for a book to interpret for a person, it has to treat the symbol like a sign. And the difference between a sign and a symbol is that a sign is designed by the conscious mind. That's a good rhyme line, you know what I'm saying? A sign is designed by the conscious mind to convey a specific, to convey a specific. So like a stop sign is not trying to do art. It's trying to convey to the human that reads it, stop. A symbol is a finite thing that's trying to point to something infinite. And it can't be, it doesn't mean one thing. And so the God of, so fiction is a bunch of dancing and moving symbols that allow your mind to whatever is alive in you right now, you can imagine like iron filings that you put over, you know, a sheet of glass and then you put a magnet underneath it. And the, the acting symbols, which are archetypes, you know, I think that's actually a good definition for archetypes is they're symbols embodied in, in, in characteristic or personality. Those are like magnets underneath the table and what, whatever is alive for you 
binds around that character, you know? And so you were able to do a beautiful freestyle on some of the living aspects of globalism by just imagining that there could be a character called the God of globalization, just all that stuff unfurled. What I think is interesting, there's a bunch of things, but the thing about a good story is that a good story can capture the attention of a child. It can hold the attention of an adult. It can bring a family around the same thing. And like how many things in our culture right now can bring the whole family around and everyone wants to give their attention to it? Almost nothing. For sure, no nonfiction book is going to capture mom and dad and son and daughter at the same time. That's just not, but a good story can do that. And one of the things that I'm really passionate about right now is it's like that whole thread that could be sparked by people when they hear about the God of globalization. It's like, I don't need a single piece more of evidence to convince me that the way things are going, if they continue the way that they are going, it's not going to be good for my grandchildren. I don't need a single thread more. And now what I'm trying to point the lance of my consciousness for the rest of my life at is I want to do the work of imagining. At least, so this is my specific goal. I want to learn enough about how to create a regenerative city on a technical level and then to write a fiction book about it before I die. Like that's the long art arc of my life because I recently read a book called The Ministry for the Future. This Dude, is a, Jamie Wheel told me to get that. Phenomenal. I, have I haven't read it. He said it's Phen- amazing. Phenomenal. So what that book does, so there's a like scientifically observable fact that good science fiction, quote unquote, creates the next generation of inventing of inventions and technology it writes the future. And basically what they found about why that is, is that good science fiction captures the attention of the children who will grow up to be the inventors and the scientists in the next generation. And because of their intimate connection with these science fiction writers and their worlds, a God is planted inside of them. They grow up into competent inventors and the God comes through them. And there's actually a really interesting arc of you, you can almost like trace a lot of inventions to the book that that inventor read that they ascribe as being the inspiration. And I, I had known that for a while, but I hadn't read a fucking science fiction book. I guess if you count Dune, but I really count Dune as like a spiritual book. But the Ministry for the Future, I started listening to on Audible probably about three weeks ago. God, it's on Audible. Bruh. It wasn't, it wasn't there when I fuck, I'm going to fucking buy it it's, right It's now. absolutely on right there. Bruh. <laughs> it, wasn't, um, it wasn't there when I first got the book. This book feels like someone dedicated like 20 years to really contending with the issues of our world and imagining a a actual possible path forward that wouldn't lead to us going extinct. And like, 
Um, I'm not going to give anything away, but I'll just give kind of, you know what? No, I'm not going to give anything away. But so that inspired me. And it's like, I am, and we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, I, I know I do. And I have the suspicion that most people can too, where you, you can feel deep down in the back of your like mind. If you're upset about a current topic, it almost feels like I'm stealing from my soul the, the amount of attention I have to give to something that something deeper inside of me knows this is not going to matter at all in 10 weeks. Like you will have forgotten that you were outraged and defending or attacking or whatever this thing that no one is going to talk about or think about or interact with on in 10 weeks. And there's this like weird shallowness that happens when you're like, if you were talking about Will Smith smacking Chris Rock, and if, if it was doing anything for you, for 99.99% of the people who aren't direct friends of the people in that group, where it'd be like, if you and Aubrey got into a fight or whatever, like for most people in the world, not a thing. And I can feel that there's this tension inside of me. Carl Jung has this idea. It's called each of us has the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths within us. And they kind of like hold tensions with each other. And the spirit of the times in you is the one who's a father. It's the one that has to answer emails. It has to make sure that the things work well enough for my children and my wife can be. And I choose to fucking, you know, be in the world in this way. But then each of us have a spirit of the depths and the spirit of the depths is, um, is millions of years old. Doesn't give a fuck about what is happening in the times. It has its own prerogative. Mine wants to eat myths and be in nature and make art and wants to not talk to anyone, you know, for days because I'm having a whole ass conversation with all the things inside of me. <laughs> And there's this tension in me where if it doesn't feel like I'm watering the spirit of my depths daily, I get really wiggly in a way that's not good. And um, it feels like I've had a hard time finding where to quote unquote point my lance because of existential risk theory. Because my previous dream was like, I want to write a revolutionary psychology that's like the best at helping people heal from depression and anxiety and my inner image that i used to represent that was uh having my hand be shook on stage where i won the nobel prize mm. and you know because like a part of the things that i've learned is have one vision at, at least one that you can see that would be a representation of you having done the thing that you're striving to do and I, I didn't give a fuck about the prize, but that felt like that was the image that represented the completion of the work. Once I got into existential risk theory, that that dream just fucking turned to ash because it was like, go get validated by the system that's eating the world. No, that that's not that is not the appropriate dream for me. It's. It's actually a, a unintegratable dream once you start to get into existential risk theory. And for people who might not know, basically, 
regardless of what you believe, it's an almost statistical certainty that if we don't address it, there's four potential existential extinction events coming towards us. One is complete ecological collapse. One is atomic warfare with some other, you know, country that has a bunch. Third is a biological warfare or the emergence of AI. And um, there's really great research from really smart people that break down why this is. I'm not going to get into it. But I heard a thing from Daniel Schmachtenberger that at least really resonated with me. And it's um, if you really understand existential risk theory and your dreams for your life are only for your generation and you on some level understand that you're choosing your lifetime over, you know, eight, 10, 20 billion potential people, you're a sociopath. Like, (laughs) like almost mathematically so. And um, there's a whole bunch of nuance in there, but that really landed for me. And so to bring home um, the most audacious, biggest goal that came to me that um, when married with my competence and my area of genius, which I think is a really important thing for people to grasp, especially if you play with non-ordinary states of consciousness and you get a vision that you're supposed to do X, is I'm not going to build a regenerative city with my hand in my lifetime. Maybe, but I don't think that that's the way that this is going. But I do think that with my area of genius, genius being in myths and writing, my competence being in writing and the edge of what I can learn scientifically, if I can weave that all into like a fifth sacred thing style of thing, where it's like my version of the mything of, you know, Arcadia is the name that actually came to mind for this thing because of all the things I've been going on. Um, I think that's my greatest contribution that I can give um, that can merge with my spirit of the times and quench the spirit of the depths in a way where it doesn't feel like it has to destroy the life of the spirit of the times to get it to listen because that's midlife crisis, you know? Yeah, that's a big one. That's all right. so, so no big deal. You just got your <laughs> life's work out of you. That's fucking rad. That's so fucking cool. I'm I'm half teetering on on... Well, let me just say this first, then I'll jump into the other part, because the other part we can talk about anytime. Your tattoo. Don't let me forget it. Mm-hmm. It's new. It's a new tattoo, and it's drawing my attention. But before we get there, it's dope. Before we get there, um, I think about that, and part part of, because I've, I've obviously touched the, the deeper part of the self and know that there's a lot to, a lot more to give than just starting a farm and, uh, you know, shifting the course of a few, you know, like... I had enough nudges in that direction where it was like, I'm going to do this. You know, uh, Joel Salatine, the last time I was on Rogan, said one in 10 people need to become farmers in a regenerative manner in order for us to not run out of organic food in 80 years. Yeah. And it would, it would effectively look, if you need a, a visual image, like interstellar, where you're growing one type of corn, all the soil's eroded, you have no other crops that will grow, and you have one chemically fertilized, you know, version of corn that somehow remains on the planet. Um, and again, I don't know, you know, timelines have been off as far as water levels rising and all sorts of shit. So who knows if they're right on the timeline of food supplies, but 
I know from the the spiritual law, you know, the hermetic principle, as above, so below, and and you know, it's written Thomas Saint Thomas in the in the, the Gnostics books that 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 is a you know that is a truth, you know, and what what Matthias De Stefano said in episode seven of uh, initiation on Gaia is that no matter where you are in the universe or the omniverse or the multiverse, all seven of these laws apply to you. No matter what fuck, if you've ascended to Christ conscious, it doesn't matter where the fuck you are in the universe. All seven of these laws apply. And that viscerally came through in several ayahuasca journeys, but most recently it came through just in the understanding that, that having a healing center for fit for service and, and for other um, activities the more work that I put into the land and healing the land and healing the soil, the more the land is activated in its potentiality to heal us, right? As a healing land, you know, for, for some intellectual folks, maybe like, what the fuck do you mean healing land? <laughs> like we all have a feeling it could be as, as simple as, um, you know, you don't live near into, next to an ocean, but when you're in the ocean, it's visceral, right? You're like, oh shit. And there's a boatload of science, you know, uh, Wallace J. Nichols was on this podcast years ago, wrote a book, Blue Mind, that speaks to the science, that corroborates that statement. And just real quick, to your point, a study just came out, I think two or three days ago, and I believe it was published in the journal Nature, that scientists have identified at least 14 different words that a type of uh, mushroom or fungi will convey through electrical charges to other of its kin fungi and that they say quote that it has a eerie maybe they didn't use the word eerie but it it is oddly similar to the structure of human language and so that's just like published in nature and so that opens up a window of everything that is living that's reproducing, that's making more things. They're talking to each other in a way. And you best believe in the way, you know, they did that study with plants that if you blare any type of music, any type of vibration, um, the plants grow better. It's almost like there's a, there was a, there, there's well, like was, a field. That was one of the arguments uh, from a, a naysayer on, on plants was that speaking singing to your plants and then they he he equated that to how much carbon dioxide comes out of your mouth so if you blast blast carbon dioxide at the plant which it needs for its own air then of course that's there's going to be a, a chemical response and an electrical response right but i believe the music. scientific st- right yeah, stereos music it has fucking nothing to do with carbon dioxide so intention right. does matter though right and and all look all it takes i don't need science to verify what ayahuasca shows me Period, you know, and 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 that doesn't mean that I take ayahuasca uh, trip reports at wholesale. There's a lot of people, based <laughs> on the structure stages of consciousness that are they're in, that come back out of that ceremony talking fucking complete gibberish. From where I'm at, and with my sort of discernment, I can decipher what is real and what isn't real, and what's true and what isn't true for me, you know, and and that's enough. But with that, you know, if, if we can potentially not potentially, when we put in our, our sweat and our soul into the land, that, that is something that you can see scientifically shift, right? You will see increased organism content in the soil. You will see an increased level of carbon sequestering. You will see all the tag words that you want to see from that. But really, we're, we're, we're creating a, um, making it come alive, you know? And with that aliveness, there's a palpable feeling, especially 
uh, in an altered state of consciousness, like breath work. You know, if you do breath work in Sedona, you you know something's going on. Like it's not like doing breath work in your living room, right? And so that's really the 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 driving mechanism for me on a short term level is just hey, I know this is what my next project is. I still don't have the overarching project, and likely won't because so much of my bandwidth is caught in what's going to happen in the next eight years, right? If we're if we're if the fourth turning is correct. And 2008 kicked off the start of a 20-year crisis, which should end in 2028, give or take three years. I'm, I'm as a dad, pretty focused on that because a dad's just not a provider. A dad is a protector, you know? And I think with those things, um, I'd be lying to myself, but I didn't say that that wasn't taking a large portion of my bandwidth. And at the same time, I can't live in that space. I still need to be in creation, right? I can't be in survival mode. At least a portion of me must be in thriving and dreaming into the next space of what I want to create. Um, but that's fucking rad. I say that because, like, it, it, at the end of the day, I think we're we're all searching to be seen and loved and and known from someone in particular. Whether you're polyamorous or monogamous, you want a person who fucking gets you, right? And without that, there is a sense of loss. There is a sense of, uh, you know, there's a gaping hole right? And not feeling fully seen and recognized by somebody else. And in part, that may be the work for you to fully know yourself in order to attract that, right? Similar, similar topic. Um, but from a lifetime scale, if we look at the arc of our life, there is the great work right. that we all came to do, you know? And, and um, I don't need to add spiritual lingo to that to make it sound cooler. It's just like, we're here to fucking do something. And for some of us that's building houses for some of that it doesn't matter what it is but but there is there is a thing when you enact it that that does go beyond what you're doing right now even the design of our house i looked into something that would be longer than seven generations deep you know like i want to make something that will stand the test of time through fucking category five hurricane hurricanes earthquakes I almost combine those two <laughs> hurricanes uh and, and so that thinking has shifted for me as well. You know, like, what, what do we do now that can seed out? You know, and then how do, we, how do we keep that in a model where it's not just kept for ourselves, but it is literally seeded out on all levels, right? Like, produce. The other thing that got me, uh, aside from Salatine saying, um, one in 10 people needs to become a regenerative farmer in the next so, so many years, was Ice Age Farmer, who's a great follow on YouTube. I tried to get on the podcast back in the day, but he's, he's pretty swamped. He's had some great content in the last two years. He said we need to switch from consumers to producers. And that struck like the full resonance chord, like bong, right inside. Like I was like, oh, shit, you know? And I, I thought about how much I consume. And, and there, there's, you know, if you watch a show like the, um, you know, minimalism and things like that it's like all right cool man but i got kids or all right cool but i gotta i gotta have this or that you know like a, a tiny house seems dope but not when we're i'm six foot three and we've got fucking two kids and a dog all of those things factor into that but at the same time if i'm not gonna crunch uh if i can't drastically crunch the consumption level can i step into producing simultaneously and at least start to give back in that way and that answer is yes i mean we we are producers already and have been and one of the most fundamental um, factors in change, right? If you look at all broken systems and you think about education, um, food, ecology, finance, all of these things, like I don't, there, there's a couple things that I can play in. There's a couple things that I don't really have a great equivalency in. Crypto may be an answer. I don't know if it's the answer. It could be centralized digital bank currency and we're all fucked. 
who knows? Um, but consciousness is a layer above that umbrella that affects all of those things, right? And that's really where Aubrey, myself, yourself, Caitlin, that, that's where we operate. We're operating on expanding people's consciousness to a point where they can then offer their greatest version of themselves to what it is that they, they're drawn towards, right? It's not saying you're, you know, it's not like the Russians in, in the USSR were like, hey, your parents are 6'6", six, six, you would be swimmer, you know, make them swim every day for six hours till they, you know, would rather work in a coal mine until they died at 17 than, than fucking compete in the Olympics. That happened. Uh, Pavel talks about it in, in Easy Strength, great book. Get off. That was smooth. <laughs> so, um, you know, consciousness is that thing that we're playing with. Consciousness, and, and you know, the fundamental standing that all is consciousness, all is intelligence, all is of or nothing is, however you want to, you know, work. You, you can marry the two, and, and Paul Levy does this beautifully in Quantum Revelation. Quantum physics mirrors a lot of spirit and, and, and the spirit science that comes from the great mystics. Um, but that's the realm that we've been playing in. You know, and for me, that that is a massive contribution from a production standpoint. If I was to produce something, there's no good there, but the service of that, the service of awakening people to deeper levels of truth and, and really just like a, on a basic level, deeper, deeper levels of understanding themselves. And a practical explanation of that would be like when Paul Check says, if you want to change your diet, stop bullshitting with yourself. If you want to lose weight, stop bullshitting yourself, right? Don't, don't. Don't argue about the thing that's like, oh, it's really not that bad for me, but you eat fucking 10 bags of it and then it is that bad for you, right? Like if you stop bullshitting with yourself, you get really clear on what is the way forward. And then all of a sudden you've lost 20 pounds. You feel great. There's less inflammation. You're able to move better. You're more mobile. You can do the things that you used to do. You can play sports. You can play pickleball. You can dance the ecstatic dance and not worry about your knee popping, whatever the thing is, right? We, We activate those systems within people so that they come fully online. And, and that has been um, more of the mental, emotional, spirit, and physical, too, because that's a big focus of my role in Fit for Service, right? And that's a big focus of the conversation we're going to have on Full Temple Reset, part two, <laughs> is, is the physical component and how that intertwines with all these things. But we are producers in that reign, and I wanted to be a producer, you know, hands in the fucking soil production on my effect of the earth. And we planted 400 trees in 48 hours. We planted over a thousand plants and counting, right? We did that all in the last 30 days. That's pretty dope. And that's just one small piece. It's 120 acres, right? But the idea that that will be spoken about, that'll have Chad Johnson back on the podcast, that um, the work of Sepp Holzer, if you can't afford to work with Chad, you've got two books for fucking 40 bucks that you can educate yourself with that will get you started. Permaculture by Richard Perkins, 90 bucks worth every penny. It's a textbook. Um, Those are ways we start to seed that out. And then all at the same time, the depths of me knows that there still is an arc to that story that's not discovered yet. There still is an arc of a lifelong mission that um, hasn't revealed itself yet. So when you talk about this stuff, man, it's fucking exciting, brother. Time. There's so many beautiful threads there and i also want to remind myself that at some point we have to actually talk about full temple reset because you and i could go for four hours but i do think that there's a way to weave it all together and one of them is it seems to be you know the word i like to use is daemon that there's a force inside of us that knows exactly what our soul image to give to the world will be aka your highest potential 
and uh, it's never going away. It it will haunt you to become you for your whole life. And there's a great way to think about this that a daemon ignored becomes a demon, and a daemon honored becomes your dharma. And that we all have a long arc to our life. Um, you know, I don't know if that's actually true because clearly people die early. But I have always felt this like old man that already is on some level very far. And that uh, I've always had this sense that like, you know, when I was an athlete, you, you almost get taught to think that you're, that the prime of your life is like your late 20s. And from that point, it's, and that's never vibed with me. I've always felt like the prime of my life is going to be like 50 because of the arena I'm going to choose to play in, which is the arena of like storytelling and speaking. And there isn't, you know, like, it doesn't matter what my knees are like as long as, you know, like, and so I've always felt that. And it's been a big part of my life to always be contending with what that long arc is because if I don't contend with it, I feel really dysregulated. Um, and so because of the existential risk stuff, I had to do that dance. An interesting thing that I've noticed is, um, and this might be too armchair psychoanalyzing, so don't resonate with it if it doesn't resonate with you. But there's something that I feel like I'm tracking is that your psyche works really well with being a good expression of like doing the right thing. If there is a really clear, alarming short-term deadline, you know, that like what the fight weeks gave to you, you know, like if a fight's coming, I know I'm going to fucking click in and do the things I got to do. And that there's this weird thing that happens in like some uh, tribal story making where there's like the rapture is coming either on this day or this week or all the documents will be released on X and like it's coming like a storm is coming. And that this current mythopoetic weave that you're playing with is that there's a thing coming eight years from now or six years from now. And that it's almost like inhibiting the long arc to even like make contact beyond that great wall. Like if you imagine your psyche is like the game of Thrones and there's the great Northern wall, it's like you can't even get a Raven over the top of the wall cause it's too high. And that your Raven, you know, is like your intuition trying to long arc itself into the future and feel like, what is the best possible thing that I can offer? And I think an interesting thing that I've been tracking the last couple of weeks is it's like, you know, and it's because I've been tracking this idea of like a regenerative city. And it's, it only works if the orchestra is dynamic as fuck. It's like the soil. And there's this weird thing that like all human beings are doing, include like I'm tracking it in myself all the time. And it's like, um, we give advice in a way where we assume what works for us is what works for all humans. And we all do this. I've seen all of us do it. It's just, it's so ingrained in us. And then the advice that we give is homogenizing advice. Do it like me. Like that's almost the nature of advice giving, but like a regenerative city, just like a regenerative farm, you want complementary diversity. 
And so maybe in the same way that Bear's Dharma is going to be like, no male who thinks he is running the show is going to get default respect from me and we'll see how he handles it. Like, that's like his thing. And we were kind of talk about in, talking about it before, but like the instinct of some parents is to homogenize the child to them. That's not good for the diversity of the lineage. And that maybe a part of your gift to the orchestra that we are doing is it's like, no, a thing's coming. And I'm, while you motherfuckers think about books and myths and all that shit, I'm going to take care of this. Whereas like uh, Vi's magic would be like, LOL at all you people who are taking everything so seriously, I'm going to sing and I'll sing for you, you know, because I love you and I hold no resentment. And it's like, we, we've lost this idea. It's really interesting. I'm just kind of riffing on this right now, but in the same way that our soil has lost its biodiversity and our crops have lost their biodiversity, it's like humans don't remember that what makes for a beautiful community is the diversity, the complementary diversity. And it's like, the fundamental like glaring misunderstanding of the political spectrum is that have you ever asked yourself the question, why has evolution found it evolutionarily optimal to create this interesting, almost 50-50 diversity in every group that is every cultural group that's operating on any type of like above 150 or 500 people, there's an interesting split, uh, polarization, two sides of what you could call left-leaning and right-leaning. Why? Why is that? And if you have the eyes to really do the looking, and this is research uh, that comes from the book, I believe uh, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, and it's that we have evolved to like half of us, our, our default is to accept the stranger. And then half of us, our default is to resist the stranger. And it's because going all the way back millions of years, one of the most significant event that would happen in the generation of a tribe would be their first encounter with another set of humans. Because for your entire life, you just thought it was you. And then you meet these others. And the stranger can either be the harbinger of a new technology or a new trade or a new idea that could revolutionize everything. Or they could have a disease that just wipes your, that kills everyone. Or they bring war. And so the hypothesis from some really good researchers is that that was one of the primary selective pressures on uh the human ancestors that eventually became us. And that's kind of a long way to say, we are going to lose and destroy ourselves if we operate under the belief that the other group on the other side of my, of my political spectrum is my enemy. We are going to be like a body that tears itself in half. And that any action that's taken with that energy behind it, any, like the thing that I've been riffing on is it's like, 
any repost, any highlight, any news article that has the explicit or implicit tone that the other group of us are either so stupid that they're not allowed at the table because they're bumbling idiots or they're so disgusting that they're not allowed at the table because of X, Y, and Z, or they're so evil that they're not out of the, allowed at the table for X, Y, and Z. We are contributing to the complete fracturing of our political body and our cultural body. And that when we live in a time where there are people who have access to buttons that can drop nuclear bombs, the, extreme end of where that can go is not a place that I think is going to help us create a world that our great grandchildren are going to be able to be in. And that's why I'm so interested in what we, what my personal like life's work core objective is, which is also what you and I are doing with full temple reset. And there's a part of me that wants to make a joke about the fucking segue, but this is a authentic weaving and I'm glad it's playing out like this is that what I have been passionate about since I've learned about it, which I think it was like 24 was when it really clicked was that each of us have this internal mechanism that the Greeks called the daemon. Some people call it your uh, conscience or your soul or whatever. Jimmy the cricket. Yes. What's unarguable is that every person I've ever met in my entire life that I've explained this phenomenon to, every single one has got it. And it's that there's something inside of you that seems to be other than you, that comments on the things that you should and shouldn't do, and you often ignore it. 100% of the humans that I have brought that up instantly resonate. So one is you could be fascinated your entire life for the fact that that even is, and we just don't think about it. But um, if you, if, if I can create works of art, writing, podcasts, books, et cetera, that can help people through a felt sense connect to that and then make the spiritual commitment to bow to it, to bow to their inner their inner other, that their dharma will come through and that that inner guidance will be a more effective guidance than any external mentor or teacher or guru or partner or boss or anything at helping you offer your just right contribution to the tapestry of what this planet needs. And that um, the really interesting thing about the charge that we get that we're a cult for fit for service is that like we are literally specifically trying to activate the thing in them that will take them away from our external guidance forever. And um, that is what I know that we're doing at Full Temple, Full Temple Reset because the really interesting, like I'm super competent at the psychological ways to get to it. But what is so underplayed in my life and what's been a great compliment for having known you and knowing you is if you do just a couple of simple things that might be hard, but if you do it in a group, it's easier to do, but a couple of simple things to reduce the noise in your body that is that occurs as inflammation, which is just bombarding us and our bodies are incredible alchemizers of the constant 
inflammation seeking and creating things that happen from just walking down the fucking road or being in a car that interestingly enough, your dreams start to get a little bit more clear. Your daytime imagination starts to be a little bit more inspirational and a little bit more capable of giving you insights and the collective coherence of people imagining and dreaming into what they want to do with their lives through listening to that still inner whisper is amplified in a way that no psychological tool I know can really get you to in the way that like fasting and stretching and cleaning up the way in which you bring water into your body, being out on the land the fucking land walks this time are going to be a whole different game because of what you guys have done on the land. But I just bring all of that up to really get to the point that I think all of us, one of our fundamental needs that we might not know is a need until you meet it in the same way that if you ate like shit for most of your life and you start to eat well, it's really hard to eat like shit again, but you didn't know until you actually ate well, is human connection because most people don't know how dehydrated they are for that. Then the other one is having a long arc vision of your life, of the thing that you want to give to the world before you die that feels like it draws out all of the best areas in you that you have been blessed to have like genius in. Like everyone has genius. It's just a matter of at what. I think that's a human need that we don't know that we need is to have that long arc goal of this is the thing that I choose to contend with and I hope it brings out the best in me. And this is something that like athletes hopefully have had the experiences of like, there's what I'm capable of doing when I am within my realm of being comfortable. And then there's what I'm capable of doing when I break through that barrier of I can't do this into this new window of, oh, my God. Like, it really is. It's it's one of those things where now that I've done enough psychedelics, I can have the mind to go back and, like, those are... Those are like psychedelic death and rebirth moments that athletes can get to when they're like 14, if you have the right coach or if you have a really terrible coach, but you still have to just do, keep running where there is this point, And this is something that's been really visceral for me lately where your body and one of the things in the spiritual space that is kind of like a low quality meme that I think gets in people's way is, you know, if your body says it, it's true. It's like any athlete will be like, eh, no, there's for sure. You have to get more discernment of your body's different voices because there is definitely a voice that if you're walking down a dark alleyway and you get this really clear feeling of don't go down there, don't go down there. But if you get the feeling of, no, don't don't work out today. That's what my body's telling me is I'm going to honor my body and not work out today. Um, you can start to bullshit yourself real quick. But athletes will get the experience of your body is like, not only don't do this, you cannot do this. You will snap. You will break. This is not going to work. And then you just, there's this thing inside of you that's like, no, do it. Keep going. And then there's this like baby coming out of the womb moment where it's like, 
where the fuck did all this energy come from? Why do I feel completely fresh? Like that's, that's another one of those things where because we have a word for it and we call it your second wind or whatever, we just completely ignore like what the fuck is going on in the body where you were about to pass out from exhaustion and then a moment happened and you're ready to like start as if it hadn't happened yet. Like where does that energy coming from? I think stuff like that is really fascinating. Um, but that is what, that's why I love what we're doing with full temple reset is it's like your greatest teacher is to connect to your daemon. We will give you a container to do so. And it's also like, I don't want the responsibility for your Dharma. <laughs> that's why like yeah. the like cult thing is just, it's not something that resonates. It's not even an allurement that resonates with me because like I selfishly, I want to write my books. I want to read my books. I want to do the thing. I do not want the responsibility for any other human's dharma ever, period, full stop. I mean, I'll help my children and shit, but like uh, that's yeah, what we're who, trying to who do. Who the fuck are we to decide what their soul's path is? Right. Right? And I will and, not. And that that is what cult leaders do. They decide right. one's soul's path. Yeah. They'll, they'll explain it in detail. You know, this is what you're meant to do. This is why you're here and you will follow me and this right. is what we're going to do together. Um, many other really clear differences there. I want to get Jamie wheel back on the podcast who was, was, um, you know, a guest speaker. He was the final speaker at our last event at the ranch at the farm in Lockhart. Just brilliantly, you know, yep. has put so much thought into this and what he calls the need for ethical cults and that, that, yeah. you know, cult in and of itself, um, is worship. Yeah. It's a, it's a different, it takes on a different meaning when you understand uh, the etymology of it, cultists, and when you understand, like, what, how can that best be used? Um, but no, we're not fucking all the members as <laughs> fucking fun as that might be. I mean, God, good looking <laughs> members, but, uh, you know, the, that's just, you know, every, every characteristic sign of that is gone. And, you know, language gets used about things, um, people don't understand or things that people might fear. Right. But yeah. the ultimate fear is, is seeing someone else connect to a part of themselves that they don't want to interact with. Right. It, it's seeing right. someone else move, move so freely and openly and with enough confidence and direction and discernment of what's best for them when, when they've taken, you know, um, when they've taken the cultural conditioning and the parental conditioning and, and taken that at wholesale to, no, I'm, I'm going to do this, you know, I'm going to be a journalist or I'm going to be a doctor. And it's not to say journalists and doctors are bad, but, but when, when you've lived your life on someone else's terms and you begin to see other people living life on their own terms and it working and it's succeeding, um, there is a fundamental aspect of the self that recognizes the why behind that. But if the ego says no, connecting to that part of themselves that creates fear that creates yeah. judgment you know and and it is a beautiful thing it is it is a beautiful thing to get questions you know we've had older you know members that have been in the game for a minute you know that might come to us uh, come to us with a question and if they've been around long enough my favorite answer is you already fucking know you know and that might seem <laughs> that might seem culty or like a uh uh, uh well, what's an example of a question i'm not quite following well i i mean um 
if somebody brings up a question that only they can answer, right? Dharma related, right, right? right? It's like you, you, and, and we know them. We've known them for two, three years, right? Like I, I, I have a few members coming to mind. I won't blast them out. Um, but I, I can't blast them out. Actually, Ben Rudnick brought this question up. You know, he, he brought up a question to us back in Sedona, and I just kind of chuckled. You know, and I, and I, when I told him, you already know the answer. Just sit with it. He, he, he kind of scoffed and then he laughed and he was like, yeah, I guess I do. And I was like, yeah, no, really sit with that and you'll get the de- all the details you need around it, right? Because he had done, ben, Ben's a phenomenal fucking guy. He had done a shit ton of work on himself at that point. And he'd done the work with plant medicines. He'd done the work way outside of our circle as well. I'm not saying like we facilitated Ben's awakening. Not that at all. He was doing work on, on multiple levels of his life with, with many different great teachers. And when he'd asked that question, it was just comical. You know, it's like, no, buddy, you got this. Yeah, there's a distinction that I like to give to people is that there's Google questions and there's soul questions. Google questions are like, if I'm asking you, how do I lay this board down correctly to do the thing that we're here to do? And then a soul question is, um, how do I know when it's been too much and I should go do X? And it's like... um, the game that happens in the coaching space that's just a part of the medium is it's uh whenever you ask me a soul question um some part of you already knows what i can do is be a just right mirror to help you triangulate on the thing that you've already known and if you've done enough work and if you've been in these type of spaces enough my favorite trick to do is to listen And then there's that pause that happens that people expect you to say a thing because they've just said a thing and you just don't say anything. And then the tension has them open up the next file in their mind that would have been there. That was already there. And it's almost always them being like, I know I could do or like they actually expect explicate the answer and so um i guess the reason i was asking for clarification i was like why is that culty or why is that like uh well it just seems like a like a you know a, a shit guru you i know, see just I be see. like oh yeah. you've my son you already know the answer you know like that right. kind of deal Heard. um yeah and to get you know super specific we laid down tons of specifics we're already getting late in the game here but we laid down tons of specifics of what this is um, from an experiential standpoint, you know, the, the things that can be explained, right? We do a five-day fasting mimicking diet. Uh, we, we, we talked about all this in the first podcast, which we'll link to in the show notes. So if you want the, the clear, deep dive on that, uh, run back the last podcast we did. You, we've done several podcasts, so we'll just link to that one that we did on Full Temple Reset originally in the show notes for people that want the, the expose of Full Temple Reset open source with recipes and all the shit, right? But I think a a brief recap of that is through the medium of fasting, which is not one size fits all, just like diet. It is different for men and women. Um, And, you know, thinking outside the box, uh, Dr. Walter Longo, who created the fasting mimicking diet, he was thinking outside the box. And he thought, you know, if, if all of these different styles of fasting prove to have benefit, how can I bridge the gap for somebody who's never gone without food? who maybe shouldn't go without food, without medical supervision. And we do have, on some level, medical supervision. Everybody gets cleared through um, uh, Ways to Well, which is uh, 
functional medicine background based in here in Texas, um, telemedicine company. So everybody gets a 45 minute call. You can answer any and all medical questions, blood work's done, and you get the thumbs up. If you're not, if you don't get the thumbs up fast, you can still attend the event. We've had a few people that did that, right? Um, most of them were too thin to fast. That's totally okay. Like, Hey man, you probably shouldn't fast. You probably need to gain some weight. Um, but they still gathered, you know, there was still enough meat and potatoes and everything else for them to gain, um, substantial life tools. And that's why they came and they did. Right. So, so that, that's always there too. It's not a, you can't do this if you're not fasting, but fasting is a big portion of this. And it's a big portion for many reasons. And we do the fasting mimicking because it bridges the gap from someone who's never gone without food and just water to still getting a certain amount of calories each day that allows them to functionally um, perform a calorie deficit that has 80% of the same gains, if you'd call them that, um, from a traditional water fast, right? And this, of course, being compared to the gold standard at Stanford, which was four days with just water. And what they found was, even though people continue to lose weight and different things, um, after the fact, after the fourth day, as far as a physiological adaptation and looking at critical numbers like hemoglobin A1C and um, snippets of metabolic function and health, as well as inflammation, systemic inflammation, most of that's achieved by the fourth day, right? So what Longo figured out was that you could give people some food each day and they could either spread it out or they could have it, you know, all in one whack. That had a significant benefit as well. And that benefit lasted for months, six months to a year, depending on who you were. And one of the reasons I wanted to include ways to well was because we'd get a pre, a before, you know, it's up to them to do the after, but we give them a before. And so for me, who has a lot of experience done, you know, two, um, five, five day water fasts with water only. And I've done two, five day fasting mimicking diets. This was my, my fourth Right. But it was the first one that I actually looked at before and after with right. blood work. And we were blown the fuck away. You know, Denise Rexrode, who's who's one of the top nurse practitioners at Ways to Well, did a, a long consult with me afterwards and went through every before and after snippet and how it had changed um, effectively for the better. And, and some key markers on metabolic function like hemoglobin A1C really changed. And, um, you know, looking at at inflammation, it really changed. It changed a lot. And this was months after the fact when I did my follow-up blood work. And I, I know I, I'm not a guy who just eats perfectly clean all the time. Like I, I'm, I'm about the cheat meal. I'm about, you know, I'll cheat clean. I'm not going to fucking eat Domino's, but I'm, I'm going to cheat clean and, and still have more carbohydrates than my genetics like. Um, but what I've seen is lasting benefit from that. And, and that's just physiology, right? Like, like all of these pieces flow together. And that's one of the great teachings that we show is how the body as a temple affects and is intertwined with the mental emotional body as a temple and how that is in effect and affects the spirit as a temple, right? The soul that we hold in the great spirit that is and how all those things flow together and, and how, you know, planting seeds in one aspect of that allows us to really gain a greater level of awareness in all aspects of the self. And we have layers to the game. Like we built a, a full temple reset as the fucking, the, the keto lasagna That's of, of the spirit world, right? Of the self-work world. <laughs> and so in that, in that keto lasagna, we've got the fasting mimicking diet, which really strips, strips us clean. Um, we have, you know, upgraded water. Uh, one of my buddies that comes out and we will be using a live water with that as well. They're a fantastic company that looks story introduced me to. Um, and, you know, really hydrating to the best level of our ability, 
hitting the sauna. And even though we won't have the, the, the ice bath this time, because it won't be January, we're still going to be jumping into cooler water to reset the body and allow us to sweat more. That's really all that that is. If you're not ice bathing Wim Hof style and you're using a contrast therapy with sauna and cold, it's going to get the job done. It's going to cool us down enough to make another 15 minute round in the sauna. And we'll be detoxing through that. We're going to open up the body. We're going to jump into your journaling practices and really get clear on how do you reflect? How do you design the life of your dreams? And how do you best act when you don't know what's next, right? Like right. Frozen 2. What is the next best step for me right now? Yeah. Not knowing where that leads. you know. And, and it's funny how Frozen 2 dovetails with uh, Lion Tracker's Guide to Life. But that is pure medicine for people, especially when there's uncertainty. Yep. And it's been my biggest medicine because there's a lot of uncertainty from, from my angle for the next eight years. And, um, you know, serenity prayer is a big part of that, right? Like, let me keep what's, what's right in front of me. What are the things that I can affect and change for the better? I will focus on that. And I'll let this other stuff, even though I'm going to be aware of it, if it's out of my control, I'm just going to pay attention to it. But I'll really put my focus and my energy and attention into the things that I can change. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we dive in further than that. You've got, you've got the dream analysis, the, the union analysis on dream interpretation, which really flows into symbology and then how that speaks into the altered states of consciousness. Right. It was the first time you've ever done that. We did that at Full Temple Reset 1. Uh, I think that it's safe to say that blew people out of the fucking water. Like the, 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 not just um, the depth at which you brought forward, but the applicability and the practicality of that medicine. Yeah. And um, this is where you're going to get that, right? And unfortunately, that's not the thing you get at home. So if you can't, <laughs> um, <laughs> there are drawbacks to doing it yourself. Um, but you can still get the physiological adaptation. And if you're aware enough, you can, you can start to pay attention to how does my mental emotional bandwidth change when I don't have food coming in, Yeah. right? And, and if you're not trying to work, like one of my, and I, I say this in the first podcast or the last podcast we did is, benefit of doing this in a group is a you're you're you have strength with your brothers and sisters in arms but b just like ayahuasca you've left your normal container 100%. to come to a different container yep. right and and by pulling yourself out of the normal container you pull yourself out of your normal responsibilities and, and it allows you to deep dive and drop into the self-work yeah right whereas if i try to fast at home <laughs> it's a little different with kids, you know, having to cook meals for everybody. Yeah. That's a, that's a challenge. It's it, just <laughs> fucked up. It's, it's not medicine. It's just fucked up. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> if I have, if I have, you know, if I'm still at home, I likely have my daily responsibilities. It's no fun doing emails and handling daily fucking work that you normally just fly through on a cup of coffee while you're fasting. It's not the same deal. Right. So pulling yourself out, or at least if you're going to do this at home, really setting that, that, ceremonial container because fasting is a ceremony and for the longest time it's been it's been one of the best ways to enter an altered state of consciousness no food no water for four days um used by dozens of cultures for thousands of years yeah absolutely and always guided too right and that's a guiding that i don't necessarily have the equivalency for yet that's why we're not putting on a vision quest we're putting on the fasting mimicking diet with these other layers and components that give people the tools that they can use in their daily life um but, but don't miss out on the opportunity of what that fast can be for you on a spiritual level, a mental, emotional level. Yeah. Uh, you're going to gain everything on the physical level, you know, but really having that as a, as a container for, for what you're trying to accomplish can lead to much more than just, hey, man, I had a thousand calorie shake each day for five days and it was great. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's, 
Uh, I didn't expect you to stop there. And so that's why there was that pause, but now I'm going to shift into gear and do the motherfucking things. Um, the, another angle to describe what we're doing is I believe that everyone on this planet has a daemon and that their daemon knows their dharma and that their daemon, if they learned how to listen to it, will guide them through every meaningful experience in their life for the rest of their life and they will know what it feels like to never actually be alone again and that we can help them make contact with it in the container in such a way where it's going to, for better and for worse for your ego, it's going to make it impossible to ignore going forward and that that will carry you for the rest of your life with you ever, with you never having to need a quote unquote guide outside of you. Again, you can for sure have mentors that will give you examples of how to do things in the world. You know, like any great artist has mentors that they work under but they don't have gurus and I don't vibe with the guru model, but you know, uh, for people who that serves them, I also am not going to dedicate any of my energy towards arguing to people that aren't listening to me, why they shouldn't do the thing that's working for them, which is a really interesting thing. Um, a quick side note that I want to go into because it just came up is to the point of uh, people who are actively critiquing us, because there are people who are actively critiquing us, but there's also just this part of the zeitgeist where there's a type of person who their public-facing dharma, quote-unquote, is to attack or criticize or mock or whatever some group of people that they don't directly interact with. And this is in all domains of life. The really beautiful thing about learning how to listen to your dreams is that your dreams will be the ultimate unstoppable bullshit caller on your ego that you'll ever know. You will not be able to bullshit yourself if you learn how to listen to your dreams and not bypass what the symbols are telling you. And I had an experience the last couple of days where um, I had interacted with a bunch of like peers in Austin who, you know, are this weird mix of like spiritual and entrepreneurial and blah, blah, blah. And there were some beliefs that were coming through them that my inner skeptic was like, wait, what? And for the next, the two major conversations that I had with two of the closest people in my life after that meeting I was being self-righteous and kind of judgmental of their shit. And I was critiquing in a very nice way that couldn't be called gossip because I'm good enough with language that I can bullshit myself and bullshit the people around me where there's this, where they don't call me out and I'm not calling me out because I'm weaving my own bullshit is um, I was critiquing them for spiritually bypassing. And the really interesting thing, man, is Every time you hear anyone talking about spiritual bypassing, the tone of talking about it is that they don't do it. Like it's, it's mixed in with their critique. I had a dream uh, two nights ago that I won't get into it, but made it viscerally aware that my psyche was showing me, I'll, I'll just share the dream because it feels important, is I'm on a boat in a river in what feels like Peru. And there's a woman in the boat with me that feels like my guide. And we get to what feels like uh, 
medicine retreat center, a lot like Spirit Quest, how it's kind of on the river. And we start walking down um, a walkway and we get to a threshold doorway to walk inside of this retreat center. And there's this like almost shimmering wet jewel looking spider on a web that's covering the entire doorway. And I look around and there's all these like glistening jeweled looking brown recluse type spiders. And I remember thinking in my head, like, God, I fucking hate the jungle. (laughs) And what I said to my guide was, uh, I don't want to knock down the web. I'll walk up and around through the front. And then as I'm starting to walk, I see my guide, this woman, nonchalantly start to move the web out of the way. Like she just didn't care what I had said. And it felt completely like normal. And then I woke up, forgot about the dream, journaled later, and then had a really clear, like I've done enough dream work where if I remember and I'm conscious and I've had any caffeine in me or anything, I like instantly, you know, break it down and the message from it becomes clear. The clear message was my psyche was showing me that I spiritually bypass. Because what was happening was when I said I didn't want to move the spider out of the way, what I could feel in my body in the dream was I was uncomfortable and I didn't want to like be around spiders. Like I was actually afraid. I said to my guide, what I implied was because I'm so wise and so compassionate, I'm not going to move the spider from its home. And in order for me not to go through that way in the dream, it was like a walking up a hill to go above and then to come around the long way. And that is my psyche in image and story form representing what spiritual bypassing is. I like that. I want to keep going, but I am going to add something to this because this is fucking great. Walk up and around. And what the dream was showing me is I... I do this viscerally. It showed me what it feels like in my internal experience when I do it. And it's because I'm good with language. I imply, oh, I'm, I don't do or I'm going to do because I am wise and I am compassionate. But the inner thing is I'm afraid. I don't know how. And so I did an exercise where I wrote down all the ways that I'm a hypocrite. And it was fucking uncomfortable or all the ways that I spiritually bypass. And what it brought me to was the quote from the Bible. um, Why do you talk about the speck in your brother's eye before addressing the log in yours? And it's one of those things where your dreams will make it visceral. The things that to your ego, you can't see at all. You can pay lip service to like, I understand that, you know, but your dreams will give you the felt sense of, no, you're a hypocrite. Here is how you've been a hypocrite. Sit with it. And the thing that I started to play with is it's like, again, this is one of those things that spiritual people know how to say the words, but very few sit in the gnosis and take responsibility for it being true for them, which is that which you critique is activating 
or growing or resonating that thing in you that is the thing that you're critiquing. I had, I, I had two conversations after that meeting where I was critiquing their spiritual bypassing. And it's like that stirred in me my spiritual bypassing. And there's this interesting thing of like the people who, who are actively charged by what we're doing, who haven't met us, who haven't been to an experience. And then um, they have the confidence that they can speak on someone else's intent that they don't know. First, that's, I think that's egregious to talk about intent of someone that you haven't met. But it's like, what is the log that's vibrating in resonance with the speck that is being called out? And it's like, um, again, I'm not going to armchair spiritualize or try to interpret someone else's intent, but I would imagine that there is a will to power and a will to status and a will to like sway or persuasion that um, they've denied. And that when they see it in the outer world, it's like foul. I've chosen either consciously or unconsciously not to do the thing I think you're doing. You know, like an ultimate example of this is if you're with someone who is either not all into the relationship or is cheating and you're not, they, they see cheating behavior in all the parts of the relationship that they get to project their inner experience onto. And I've, I was in a relationship once where it was like, no, what I'm doing when I'm not texting you is literally like the nerdiest, goofiest shit. I have, there is no going out to the things on the side. Like, do you really want to know? I, I just spent 14 hours playing a video game while listening to an audio book about the video game. Like, <laughs> and that, but they were battling with the urge to want to be with their ex while they were with me. And I'm just over here being a fucking dweeb that's excited about myths and shit but in all the parts of the relationship that they got to project their experience onto that's what came back from the darkness and it's like it's it's become like a new type of career now in our time where it's like people can find the person out in the world that most resonates with the log in their eye that they can't see and they build a career on critiquing that spec. Who was the guy? Rogan had a, when he started doing debates, he had the guy, Michael something. Shermer? Shermer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Skeptic, right? Yeah. Something. And uh, with uh, Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson. And Shermer brought on a guy who was uh, not a great debater. He was kind of in your face, like, that's bullshit. You know, he, he got, he got, he was on tilt. But it became abundantly clear, you know, not only had Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson um, provided the truth and substantiate substantially backed up what they were talking about. Um, but they also, you know, they won the debate on debates terms. You know, when you think about the way to have a real authentic conversation without shitting on someone personally, that Shermer's friend was not able to hold, you know? So like the, from the, from the listener, you know, from the listener's right. ear, it was like, pfft, most people knew it before they went on what the case was. But, um, 
they provided nothing of, of, of substance after that. It's interesting with what you're saying around, and I, I had a couple, you know, it's, it's similar to the idea with what you're talking about, the log in the eye and the speck in another around, you know, like the old teaching that, um, the thing that bothers you about another person also lives within yourself. That's why it bothers you in the first place around another person. And I do feel that that is, can, can be applied in many circumstances, especially when we're talking about someone building a career, um, someone building a career around uh, shitting on someone else, right? And, and, I, and I can think of two examples right now. Um, most recently that we were talking about before the podcast, the food babe and the side babe. Side babe builds her entire career, gives herself the same handle verbatim, but now science instead of, <laughs> instead of food. Like I'm going to one-up you there and then tries to make a name for herself by shitting on somebody who has been on the forefront of exposing um, corrupt practices and, and nasty ingredients in various foods that most people find to be healthy. It's, there's nothing inherently wrong with what the food babe's done. Um, but the side babe saw a problem with that. She saw a problem with the, the lexicon that the food babe used around, you know, sugar being toxic and things of that nature. She's been on Ben Greenfield's and, and uh, Rogan's podcast as well. And I was just scratching my head like, wow, all right. Yeah, sure. Most chiropractors are fucking douchey, but I've had quite a few that were the real deal, that were awesome, that didn't tell me, hey, I'm going to fix your back three days a week and I'll see you for the rest of your life, but said, Here, here's some things that you can do to correct that so I don't need to correct your fucking back anymore. Right. And obviously they had further education in the chiropractic school, but that's not to say you can throw all these people out like the baby with the bathwater. Um, so while there is that, the log in the eye and, and the mirror, you know, that uh, coming forward to you, there still is the, the other thing. Like, I don't, I don't dislike pedophilia because I want to fuck kids, you know, like that, there's no mirror there where I'm like, man, this whole situation with Kane is absolutely fucked up and it's, and it's eating me alive inside thinking about how that's transpired. Um, because secretly, you know, there's a part of me that, that, that wants to be with children like that, that just is not fucking there. And, and I gotta be careful what I say on podcasts because of what they're fucking doing with voices now, but still, you know what I'm getting at? Like, um, even what I've said just now could be incriminating in fucking <laughs> 10 years. Who, who the fuck knows with technology, but um, I want to read this passage real quick on spiritual bypass because I think it's, it's one of the best. It's from the original guy who coined the term, right? So in my mind, and, and this is from Paul Check's new book, I will state that this is a quote from other books. So I'm not giving away anything <laughs> Paul has written for himself. And um, if this is off limits, Paul, just tell me in the future and I will not quote anything, even if it's from somebody else's book. But because this is from other books, I will, I will uh, drop this because I think it's, it's great if we have uh, a similar understanding of the, the lexicon, right? And we've had many conversations around how you'll, you'll see how this definition really applies to those conversations. Spiritual bypassing describes a tendency to use spiritual explanations to avoid complex psychological issues. Mm. Reference Picciato, G, Fox, J, Neto F, a phenomenology of spiritual bypass, causes, consequences, and implications. I'll put this in the show notes too, so if people want to dive deeper, they can. The term was first coined during the early 1980s by a transpersonal psychotherapist named John Wellwood in his book, Towards a Psychology of Awakening. According to Wellwood, spiritual bypassing can be defined as a, quote, tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. Another reference here, 
Human Nature, Buddha Nature, an interview with John Wellwood. As a therapist and Buddhist teacher, Wellwood began to notice that people, including himself, often wielded spirituality as a shield or type of defense mechanism. Rather than working through hard emotions or confronting unresolved issues, people would simply dismiss them with spiritual explanations. While it can be a way to protect the self from harm or to promote harmony between people, it doesn't actually resolve the issue. Instead, it merely glosses over a problem, leaving it to fester without any true resolution. And that's reference What is Spiritual Bypassing by Kendra Cherry. And uh, another 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 uh, link there at the bottom. So we'll, I'll link to this all this in the show notes if you want to dive deeper into that. How does that land for you, you know, in 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 relationship to the dream? Because I think what the dream is pointing out is is the beauty of the psyche. Like when you started seeing that in another, because of your level of awareness and how you have listened to the daemon, your daemon said, "Oh, hey, but wait a minute." There's some of, there is some of that in you. Let's let me show you the way in which we do this, right? And so there's a revealing that you were willing to accept. Your ego was like, okay, I can see that now, right? And I think that's important. Not everyone, not all the people talking shit about others on Instagram is going to have their fucking psyche pointing shit out in their dreams like that, or let alone the the symbology to understand it, right? Right. Because um, I'm willing to bet that their dreams actually are, but they can't. They just wouldn't have no any idea. Right. Yeah. Be like, oh, that was a fucking weird one. I saw yeah. Katie Cat. You know, <laughs> this happened. Yeah. Yeah. So to your question, the way it lands is um first, I love like a crisp definition that captures something. Like that is what language does beautifully, is it can like there's a hilarious thing of like the function of a bookshelf is to show you everywhere not to look for a book because it contains all the books within that space. Um, that's what a good definition does is it's like, it's not the thing itself, but it can help you ignore a lot of the bullshit so you can focus on the thing. So just, I just really appreciate the definition. What it, the thing that felt important is that when I was having those two conversations with those two people in my life, after having met the peers that I didn't, resonate with that part of their spiritual bypassing story in those two conversations i was not tracking that that log was in my eye and i was actively in the space of being self-righteous like even though i'm good enough with my language not to say anything clearly enough where it would feel self-righteous to the other person the, the part of me that's tracking my internal experience had no humility with my critique. It was just kind of like, I'm annoyed and I'm going to use my fast, strong mind to just, I do this weird thing if I'm being honest with myself where I tin man. So it's not a straw man, but I'm definitely not steel manning, but most people aren't used to anything other than straw manning that the people I'm talking to are like, wow, it's really cool that you can see it from that way, but I'm still demolishing it. Like it's, it's actually a pretty, interesting thing for me to be self-aware of is it's like um in my attempt to not straw man i'm manipulate or I'm, I'm i'm controlling the person i'm talking to from feeling like i'm being super wise and awesome blah 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 but i'm still not steel manning but i was able to go two conversations in a row of being self-righteous and it's like that's very rare for how my internal dance works and that's what my dream was like you know, a bad owner will 
grab a dog's head and force it into shit. What I imagine is it's like a gentle interdimensional grandmother is it's just like it brings the boy to the closet where he's hiding the, the, the shit. And it's just like, you know, uh, the pantomime or pantomime I was doing to Kyle is just kind of like this, like I'm making eye contact with you. I have, you know, like a slight glint in my eye of some tears coming because I know you feel shame, but we're going to look at it. You know, like it's, it's that type of like, I love you. And also I'm with you in the shame that you feel that's very small for the thing that you did. <clears throat> to bring it back to full temple reset, um, it's really hard for me to teach dreams, but it feels like one of the most important things it's hard for me to teach dreams in a condensed way. That's not just like a full on thing with a group of people all day. But I think it's one of the most important aspects of being able to listen to the daemon. Cause one of the ways it will speak to you is through your motherfucking dreams. And God, if you can learn how to listen to your dreams, people fear that they're doing it wrong. You know, it's like a consistent thing. If you learn how to listen to your daemon, you cannot, or you at least have to consciously choose to do it wrong. Like, it's not like you're going to, but um, one of the things that we do at Full Temple Reset that I fucking love that I never got to do before and is currently the only container that I do it is there's a multiple day dream analysis workshop that builds on top of each other. And by the end of the third day, we were just getting into the groove of interpreting people's dreams in front of the whole group. And it's just like everyone was like, People were having dreams at the event that they would ask me to interpret the following day in front of the group. And it's like, it would be the just right thing to be a bomb for everyone in the room for all of their, like, the beautiful thing about a dream is that it's archetypically correct in that it allows, just like we said at the beginning of the podcast, our psyche, our conscious mind is a bunch of iron filings. A good mythical story is like different magnets that just charge and attract together the content in you that resonates with that archetype. And it was wild to feel the effect on other people of interpreting because one of the things about dreams is it's like there's the joke that people make that um, no one is as interested in your dreams as you are. Like, don't tell me about your fucking dreams. I feel the fucking opposite. Tell me about your dreams. But to feel it capture the room. My intuition is that when people get together and do hard shit together, their psyches will start to dream for the group. And that's the thing that we were playing with on the last day. Because, like, as a speaker, you know, when you're really touching, like, the numinous, the, like, gravity in the room changes. There's no one on their phone. There's, there's not even people coughing or sneezing. It's, it's like all involuntary body movements stop and it's just like a stillness. And some of the dream interpretations, like I always kind of fear that it'll make people bored. But people were fasted. It was midday and it was still just like, it felt like there was a gravity. Um, and it's... It's one of the things that I'm passionate about sharing. And currently the only place that we get to do it right now is uh, at Full Temple Reset. And it, and it is one of the only things that we hadn't done before, like going into it. Like I knew fucking, hey man, we're going to get through this fast. I got little tips and tricks. We got um, 
my homie Oscar is the on-site nurse. So if someone's really struggling with holding electrolytes, we can give them an IV and different things like that and glutathione and whatever supplements. Um, uh, if people are shitting their brains out at night because the, the amount of MCTs in the coconut <laughs> is destroying candida, we've got a little remedy for that. We've got all sorts of little things that I was able to operate with and, and get people back on track so they're running smoothly and everyone was able to finish. But we didn't know how, how that was going to land, right? Like that was the first time ever. And obviously we always have high expectations. You have high expectations of yourself as you should. And I had high expectations of that. But like to actually sit in the room and be a part of it, that was fucking exceptional. You know, in many ways, and I've, I've, I've said this with, um, we've all talked about this amongst the, the crew at Fit for Service with the staff. It really is too immersive rolled into one, you know, but it's a beautiful kitchen sink. There's a reason it's five days. You know, we finished with the sound healing ceremony on our final fasted day before we have this giant feast. And um, it's an experience that we get to go through together, you know, and with that community is formed. And we've had a lot of members that went from that, that went right into um, Aubrey and Vailana's uh, Road to Union. Road to Union. And then we had a lot of people roll straight in from that into the core event, you know, and we've got a big festival coming up uh, this summer out in Wyoming, that's going to be more of a celebration. You know, summer summer in the Native American spirit wheel was the harvest. It was the time to, like, really celebrate and to live, you know, in, in the, the burning embers of the sun. You know, when, when it's hottest and you've got the most en- energy and the highest testosterone, the peak ce- celebration, you know, and, and we're going we're gonna to have that. We'll learn shit, too, while we're there. But we've also got the most ridiculous playlist of fucking fantastic artists, you know, coming to this event. Yeah. And then we'll finish off in the fall and summertime with our final core event of the year, where we really do get to have, you know, a, a more ceremonial container and a deeper uh, level of self-work and, and wisdom come through, you know? So each of these, the way this year is, has shown up, it, it's been, I mean, I was giddy as fuck when Ob talked about, you know, how this year was going to look and the potential to create different things like immersives. Um, this is, you know, at every core event, we always change it up. I mean, there may be some similarities. Like, yeah, we got Lucas and Hella coming to this one to do breathwork again. Breathwork's a psychedelic experience. It's an altered state of consciousness. 100%. So there's no one breathwork that's the same, but we bring in the same experts from time to time because they're able to take us through something. This is the only event that we do that's the same each time. And because it's that fucking good, because it's that important, and because it is something you can do multiple times a year, um, and really still receive a tremendous benefit from, you know, speaking to the fasting alone, but right. to the container There's something itself, so. measurable happening to the, your biology that if you do that fasting mimicking diet and just that for five days, your biology as supported by the blood work that we've been doing will just be better for the next six months and that it doesn't matter what the fuck you believe. It doesn't matter what you it's different from the cores and that it's not a psychological transformation. You're going to get it on, on my honor. I give you my word, Yeah, brother. but just from a straight up psych, just from a biological standpoint, it's, it's like rejuvenating. And so that's why we're able to run it back. Yeah. And that, that biological uh, application does influence psychology. Right? So like being able to see these things, from our open and expanded state while fasted, I think has a tremendous impact on people as well. 
I'm fucking thrilled, dude. We've gone an hour and 48. <laughs> and we went an hour before? <laughs> yeah, it was about a three-hour three hour run. I love you so much, brother, and I'm so excited to run it back with you. I love you too, man. It's an honor.